One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Dolphins at Ravens. Kickoff Sunday, September 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. Both teams ranked in the top seven in pass rate over expectation and pass rate over expectation on first down in week one. Interesting setup where both offenses project to lean pass heavy while simultaneously utilizing slow pace of play. Both teams are likely to end the season in the top five in blitz rate on defense. Expect both teams to primarily lean pass heavy with primary emphasis over the short to intermediate middle of the field. How Miami will try to win. Mike McDaniel gave us a glimpse into how the Dolphins are likely to operate this season in Week 1, with one interesting twist. We witnessed the standard Shanahan tree, slow pace of play, 31st overall and 27th situation neutral, and Josh Boyer's swarming defense, but the team left Week 1 with the highest pass rate over expected value and highest pass rate over expectation on first down in the league. It takes a lot of speculation as to why we saw the high pass rates last week, which could be anything from a specific game plan against the Patriots, to an intent to mask a bottom 10 offensive line, to making a statement with his newly acquired alpha wide receiver, but I tentatively expect the aggression to continue. Consider this. Miami averaged a paltry 2.41 yards per running back carry against the Patriots last week, but 8.2 yards per pass attempt and 11.7 yards per completion. That said, there are multiple signs pointing to increased pass rates continuing forward in Week 2 against the Ravens, which we'll get into further. Speaking of the ground game, man oh man did this unit fail to get anything going last week. Not only did we see a putrid 2.41 yards per running back carry, but the offensive line lacked any real push up front, and the outside zone run scheme was almost non-existent. The latter of which could be a big issue considering Miami brought in two running backs best suited to B-gap and off-tackle rushing. I expect we might see a similar game plan to what the Jets decided to do last week against these Ravens. Throw the football. And a lot. Okay, probably not 59 times, but yeah, a lot. And that wasn't just an anomaly. Baltimore has not ranked lower than third in the league in rush attempts against per game since 2018 when they finished fifth in the metric. The combination of Brandon Williams, who's no longer with the team, and Michael Pierce, their starting nose tackle, the combination of Brandon Williams, who's no longer with the team, and Michael Pierce, the starting nose tackle, have ranked no lower than third in run-stopping metrics in each of the previous five seasons. Pair that with an aggressive blitz and defense that plays man coverage and cover one at some of the highest rates in the league, this remained relatively consistent in Week 1 under new defensive coordinator Mike McDonald, who received the in-house promotion after the departure of Wink Martindale, and were likely to see the Dolphins side with an aerial first attack once again in Week 2. The Dolphins' pass offense exhibited many of the characteristics we should expect based on the Shanahan tree in Week 1, with 12 of 33 pass attempts coming within 5 yards of the line of scrimmage, 5 attempts 20-plus yards down the field, and 9 of 16 intermediate attempts, 5 to 15 yards down the field, going to pass catchers over the middle of the field. Basically, whether it was due to scheme or quarterback Tua Tagovailoa's relative lack of downfield acumen, this pass offense operated under horizontally spread basic concepts in Week 1, with sparsely utilized downfield attempts built from there. Expect McDonald to continue to utilize the speed of his primary skill position players to put strain on opposing defenses in the horizontal plane, with the goal being to get the ball into their hands in space. Tyree Kill saw a massive 12 of 33 pass attempts directed his way in Week 1, 36.4% team target market share, 
setting up an interesting matchup against what is highly likely to be primary coverage for Marlon Humphrey and Marcus Peters should he make his return from a torn ACL. The best on-paper matchup for Miami pass catchers falls into whichever wide receiver sees the most slot snaps, but Miami utilizes enough pre-snap motion and misdirection that on-paper matchups become less relevant. Baltimore starting nickel corner Kyle Fuller was lost for the season in Week 1 due to a torn ACL, leaving starting duties to 2021 third-round pick Brandon Stevens, who posted just a 33% man coverage success rate last year on a 52.1% man coverage rate again highlighting the heavy man principles the Ravens' defense typically operates under. Stevens also allowed a hefty 120.2 passer rating and a 2.0 fantasy points per target in his primary coverage, each of which are extremely poor marks. These shortcomings, paired with a low route participation rate from tight end Mike Isecki, leave Miami with a very clear, and potentially concentrated, path of least resistance through the air. Finally, given Baltimore's heavy blitz rates, 31.1% in 2021, and 30.6% in Week 1, expect Miami to continue to lean towards a ball-out-quick primary aerial game plan. How Baltimore will try to win The Ravens approached their Week 1 dismantling of the Jets almost exactly as we had expected, finishing the game with the Week's 7th-ranked pass rate over expectation. As we talked about last week, this was the most likely game plan for the Ravens with their backfield and offensive line in the shape it was entering the week. Heavy 21-12 and 12 personnel usage, fullback Patrick Richard, the most snaps of any back, Rashad Bateman led wide receivers in snap rate at just 66%, and both Isaiah Likely and Josh Oliver played more than 34% of the offensive snaps, and a stifling defense. Injuries continued to be an issue for Baltimore, however, as left tackle Jawan James and nickel corner Kyle Fuller were lost for the season due to a torn Achilles and ACL, respectively. Keep an eye on practice reports out of Baltimore throughout the week, as all of starting left tackle Ronnie Stanley, running back J.K. Dobbins, and cornerback Marcus Peters are attempting to make their return to the lineup following prolonged absences. Regardless of Dobbins' game day status, I expect the Ravens to continue a spread aerial attack bias due to the mounting injuries on their offensive line and relative lack of health of their backfield. Newcomer running back Kenyon Drake waltzed into the building and led the backfield in running back opportunities by a hefty margin after being with the franchise for all of 11 days in Week 1. The loss of left tackle Jawan James in Week 1, paired with the absences of left tackle Ronnie Stanley and running backs J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards, leaves the Ravens' run game in unfortunate yet familiar territory heading into Week 2. I'd expect more of the same this week, regardless of whether or not Stanley and or Dobbins return to the lineup, as I wouldn't immediately expect either to play heavy snaps after prolonged absences, meaning we're likely to see running back Kenyon Drake, more suited for a dynamic role than Mike Davis or Justice Hill, and fullback Patrick Richard lead the team in snap rate in the backfield once more. Considering the fact that the Ravens ended Week 1 with a low 41.2% overall rush rate in a game they led handily throughout, we can safely assume this backfield should largely be left alone for fantasy purposes. Tight end Mark Andrews led Baltimore pass catchers in snap rate and route participation rate in Week 1, which should continue throughout the season. Behind Andrews, de facto alpha wide receiver Rashad Bateman finished top amongst wide receivers in snap rate, but was edged out by the electric Devin DuVernay in route participation rate. That said, no Baltimore wide receiver played more than 66% of the offensive snaps in Week 1, leaving efficiency and touchdowns as the likeliest contributors to fantasy value moving forward. The most telling part of the Ravens' Week 1 game against the Jets was the fact that they ended with a 58.8% overall pass rate in a game they controlled with their defense throughout, meaning we can safely assume a floor of 30-33 to pass attempts for quarterback Lamar Jackson was ceiling for much, much more. His 30 pass attempts in Week 1? 
came on only 51 total offensive plays run from scrimmage. Now consider the outside-in zone concepts and heavy blitz rates employed by the Miami defense, and we're likelier than not to see elevated pass rates utilizing the short to intermediate areas of the field as the primary areas of attack through the air for the Ravens. Likeliest Game Flow Eventual upside from this game depends largely on how each defense performs in the red zone as we can expect each team to lean pass-heavy with a focus over the short to intermediate middle of the field. Basically, each offense should theoretically find success in their primary means of attack, Dolphins via schemed short to intermediate passing against heavy man coverage principles, and Ravens via short to intermediate passing due to necessity against outside-in heavy zone concepts and heavy blitz rates, meaning we're likely to see each offense achieve some level of success between the 20s. Combine those thoughts with the relative slow pace of play but elevated pass rates from each offense, and we're likely to see an environment develop where each team's primary pass catchers, Tyree Kill and Mark Andrews, carry elevated individual floors but would require either extreme red zone efficiency or busted coverages to send the game environment into the range of had-to-have-it. That said, consider this game firmly in the primary pieces carry nice floors and theoretical ceiling remains high bucket for week two. Jets at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, September 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 40. Game Overview by Hilo. The Jets looked lost offensively against the Ravens, but their game plan indicated a clear understanding of the path of least resistance from their coaching staff. Should that dynamic game planning and game calling continue into Week 2, we're likeliest to see a more balanced approach against the Browns. The Browns' game plan remains very clear. Split a heavy rush workload amongst their two elite backs behind one of the league's top offensive lines and hide the fact that they have Jacoby Brissett at quarterback. The path of least resistance likely to align with how each team chooses to bias their attack. How New York will try to win The Jets found themselves in a difficult situation for Week 1 eventually playing without their starting quarterback and two high-profile injuries to their offensive line. Mekhi Becton was lost for the season with a knee injury, and fill-in veteran starter Dwayne Brown was placed on IR ahead of their opener. I was highly interested to see how they approached the game plan against a Ravens defense with injuries in the secondary, and it was made apparent very swiftly that head coach Robert Sala and offensive coordinator Mike LaFleur had no issues turning to the pass when the clear path of least resistance called for it. As such, we should start our exploration into the likeliest plan of attack for the Jets with their opponent, the Cleveland Browns. Joe Woods utilizes heavy zone concepts, an athletic 4-2-5 front, and low blitz rates to generate organic pressure in the backfield and keep the play in front of the second level through a base cover 2 nickel package secondary. When you combine the prevent nature of the Cleveland defense with the expected high rush rates of their offense behind one of the league's top offensive lines, we're left with a likeliest plan of attack that should shift a little more conservative from the Jets this week. As in, I don't think we're likeliest to see 59 pass attempts versus just 17 total rush attempts from the Jets in Week 2. Furthermore, we're highly unlikely to see the Jets run 76 offensive plays due to their opponent and their offensive tendencies. The Jets were afforded that many plays run from scrimmage last week due to the pass-leaning tendencies of the Ravens paired with untimely and costly turnovers. Staying true to their preseason word, the backfield materialized as a near 50-50 split in snap rate and opportunity share with Michael Carter the starter and lead rusher and electric rookie Brees Hall the change of pace and long down and distance to go back. The negative game flow and inability of their receivers to shake heavy man coverages led to the backfield seeing a combined 19 of 59 pass attempts directed their way, good for a lofty 32.2% running back target market share split 10 targets for Hall and 9 for Carter. 
the Jets mustered 4.06 adjusted line yards through their offensive line in week one, which is actually quite remarkable considering the Ravens' defensive line ran the top marks in the league last week. That makes sense when looking into the retool offensive line for the Jets, with injury concerns coming at the left tackle position, which also helps to explain a bottom five adjusted sack rate. In all, the matchup yields a slightly below average 4.13 net adjusted line yards metric in what should be an area of emphasis for the Jets. Elijah Moore ran as the clear alpha of this pass-catching core in Week 1, with a hefty 89% snap rate and 73.3% route participation rate, but saw only 7 targets, a lowly 12.7% targets per route run, which, for comparison, was leagues below his 24% targets per route run value in 2021. In what would seem like another anomaly, Moore was targeted on 31% of his routes against man coverage versus 18% versus zone in 2021. In a matchup against heavy zone principles, we could see Moore put up modest numbers once more if his targets per route run values to start the season are an indication of a more spread offensive game plan. Corey Davis remained the clear wide receiver two on this offense behind Moore, playing 57 offensive snaps, 68%, compared to 41 for rookie Garrett Wilson, 49%, and 39 for Braxton Berrios, 46%. All indications point to this split behind Moore remaining consistent moving forward unless, or until, Wilson asserts himself on the perimeter. At tight end, Tyler Conklin dominated the snaps and opportunities, parlaying a 92% snap rate into seven targets. C.J. Uzoma mustered 27% of the offensive snaps and saw zero targets, while Lawrence Cager saw a 12% snap rate and one target. That said, this is historically an offense that utilizes the tight end sparingly in the passing game, which again transpired in Week 1. How Cleveland will try to win We know what to expect from the Browns week in and week out. A heavy rush workload split amongst their two elite backs behind one of the league's top offensive lines. Jacoby Brissett is an above-average game manager in the NFL, but that's also about where the positives cease. That means we can expect the weekly game plan to remain rather stagnant, at least for as long as Deshaun Watson remains out of the lineup. The Browns finished Week 1 with the fourth lowest pass rate over expected value, ahead of only the 49ers, duh, Bears, playing conditions, duh, and Giants, whoa leading to a balanced 39 rush attempts versus 34 pass attempts. Of note there, the final two drives for the Browns consisted of just three rush attempts compared to nine pass attempts, including two spiked balls, as the Browns looked to salvage a blown 20-7 fourth quarter lead, meaning they held a 36-25 rush-to-pass ratio before the final two drives, 59% rush rate, just 41% pass rate. Unsurprisingly, the Browns left their Week 1 contest with the league's highest adjusted line yards value on offense, with this week's matchup yielding a well-above-average 4.64 net-adjusted line yards metric. Kareem Hunt actually paced the backs in snap rate last week with a 56% snap rate, while both primary backs were close to even, 53% for Chubb. The difference in these two backs' workloads remained consistent when compared to last season, as Hunt saw just 11 carries and 4 targets to Chubb's 22 carries and 1 target clearly indicating a direct effort to get Chubb the ball when he was on the field. The dude had 23 running back opportunities on 42 offensive snaps, meaning he saw a carry or target on 55% of his snaps, which is ridiculous. The combined six total targets amongst the running backs, four for Hunt, one for Chubb, and one for Demetric Felton, were right in line with their yearly values from last season, 20% in Week 1 compared to 22.2% in 2021. The quarterback situation for the Browns appears likely to sap most of the value from their pass catchers until Deshaun Watson returns. That said, Amari Cooper and Donovan Peoples-Jones ran as the clear top wide receivers in Week 1, 83% snap rate apiece, and David Njoku ran as the clear lead tight end, 
89% snap rate, with Anthony Schwartz, David Bell, and Harrison Bryant far behind the top three, 29, 28, and 48% snap rates respectively. The overall offensive design remained rooted in 21 and 12 personnel, a clear indication of the run-leaning ways to come. Donovan Peoples-Jones paced the team in Week 1 targets per route run, 33%, total targets 11, and receiving 60 yards. But he came down with only 6 of 11 targets and managed only 5.45 yards per target. It's safe to say that the efficiency of the pass offense should remain in question moving forward. Likeliest Game Flow The rebuilt secondary for the Jets, the heavy zone concepts and base cover 2 and nickel defensive scheme for the Browns, strength of the offensive line for the Browns, and the apparent tendencies for the Jets to game plan towards the path of least resistance on offense all come together to form a game environment where each team should tailor their approach towards a run-balanced Jets or run-heavy Browns approach. That leaves very little room for this game to turn into an environment ripe with fantasy goodness considering the split nature of each backfield and relative spread nature of each pass offense. Of note, Elijah Moore is the clear alpha for the Jets, while it's anyone's guess as to how pass volume will eventually shake out for the Browns. That also leaves very few paths to the game environment following a tributary or secondary flow, meaning we can treat this one with a little more face value than some of the other games this week. Commanders at Lions. Kickoff Sunday, September 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 48.5. Game Overview by Hilo. The field is likely to have a lot of uncertainties about this game, considering the different things these two teams showed us in week one. The certainties I find from these two teams are simply this. The Lions play fast and like to run the football, and the Commanders have a head coach and offensive designer that weigh opponents heavily in their weekly game plan. DeAndre Swift got his ankle rolled up on early in week one and missed practice to start the week. Monitor this situation closely as the team elevated Justin Jackson from the practice squad on Wednesday. Wide range of outcomes from the game environment itself, likely dependent on the health of Swift and the Detroit offensive line, but a likely narrow distribution of workload based on individual team design. How Washington will try to win. The commanders shocked the football world with their offensive game plan to start the season, coming out and remaining aggressive through the air with a new quarterback and new pass catchers. Their week one pass rate over expectation landed at number four in the league, behind only Miami, Kansas City, and Buffalo and their pace of play landed in the top half of the league. The interesting part to me is the fact that Washington boasts a top 10 offensive line by all metrics, leading me to believe the pass-heavy game plan for Week 1 was exactly that, a specific game plan tailored to the opponent. As such, I am a little hesitant to make any sweeping assertions based on the first game of the year for this team. Consider this. Washington ran 69 offensive plays in Week 1, but fed their running backs only 17 combined carries. The two primary running backs combined to see 11 of 41 Carson Wentz targets directed their way, and head coach Ron Rivera's favorite offensive toy, Curtis Samuel, is healthy and a large part of the offensive game plan. Of those three major week one trends, it is likeliest to me that the first two were very game plan specific based on the opponent, while the latter signals more of a trend considering the history between the two. Either way, the Lions pose a stiffer test than what the commander saw in week one against the Jaguars. Consider me highly interested to see their offensive tendencies against a new opponent. As brought out earlier, the running backs saw only 17 combined carries, but 11 combined targets in Week 1. Those running backs were exclusively Antonio Gibson and J.D. McKissick, who played snap rates of 64 and 40%, and saw running back opportunities of 22, 14 carries and 8 targets, and 6, 3 carries and 3 targets, respectively. Let's say that again. Antonio Gibson saw eight targets in week one and was the undoubted lead back. Okay, 
I want to emphasize that because of all the stink that the man came out of camp with, again highlighting just how little we know to start the year, which is honestly amplified heading into week two because we now have all these fresh new biases to contend with from a one-game sample, which is also the reason I wrote the lead for the Commanders the way I did, because this team is highly likely to have some sweeping assertions made about them by the industry and the field when the fact of the matter is we really don't know how their offense will operate moving forward. Having said that, we can safely assume that Gibson is the 1A of this backfield, at least for as long as Brian Robinson remains out. The pure rushing matchup is a good one against a young defensive line and team that just allowed the Eagles to rush for 5.5 yards per carry last week. Circling back to the Curtis Samuel piece, I would say with a high degree of confidence that his usage in week one is likely to continue for as long as he remains healthy. Let's look at the facts. Ron Rivera coached Samuel in Carolina, where he was utilized in a similar way to what we saw in week one, somewhat of a Swiss army knife with carries, pre-snap motions, sweeps, the works. Rivera left Carolina and then sought out Samuel in free agency, bringing him over to Washington, who slapped him with a three-year, $34.5 million deal. Samuel then gets hurt and misses most of 2021, and the community forgets about their connection. Best ball drafters forgot, I can guarantee that much. That said, his average depth of target in week one was a paltry 1.4 yards, and he amassed a total of 14 air yards, which is laughably hard to do. He was also the clear wide receiver three from a snap rate perspective, handling only 71% of offensive snaps. All of that to say, Curtis Samuel is someone we need to be aware of for how much schemed usage we can expect, but that schemed usage absolutely must be present due to the low ADOT and type of usage he's seeing, meaning his utility is likely to depend on specific game plans and game environments, which we just got done exploring as potentially different this week compared to last. Terry McLaurin and rookie Jahan Dotson predictably led the way as far as snap rate goes, 90 and 88% respectively, but mustered only 4 and 5 targets respectively. Again, chalk that up to a specific game plan. While the game plan regarding the rushing utilization and involvement is likely, in my mind, to change heading into week 2, the heavy blitz rates, 48.8% in week 1, second highest in the league, the Lions showed us in week 1 are likely to force another aerial attack based primarily on short and quick hits meaning it might be another week where Samuel sees a spike in the schemed usage we talked about before. Logan Thomas made a surprising return to the lineup in week one after suffering a devastating knee injury last season, immediately regaining the lead role. Look for John Bates to continue mixing in until Thomas is fully healthy. How Detroit will try to win. The Lions have built their offensive identity around two players this offseason, DeAndre Swift and Amon Ross St. Brown. I lead with that because Swift's health is a big contributor to how we can expect the Lions to approach their game plan for a game against the Commanders. Swift missed practice on Wednesday, but quickly dispelled any worries, telling reporters there was no way his ankle injury would hold him out on Sunday. Words are all fine and good, but the team elevated fellow running back Justin Jackson from the practice squad on Wednesday, indicating at least some level of concern regarding Swift's status. In addition to Swift's injury, four or five starting offensive linemen are dealing with injuries of their own. Halapulavati Vaitai is on IR with a back injury suffered at the end of the preseason. Center Frank Ragnow is dealing with a groin injury suffered in practice last week and missed practice on Wednesday. Left guard Jonah Jackson was limited to start the week with a finger injury, and left tackle Taylor Decker missed practice on Wednesday with a calf injury. That's a lot of concern surrounding the run game after just one week. I lead with that discussion because of the importance of Swift, the run game, St. Brown, and how those pieces influence the likeliest game plan heading into Week 2. Keep an eye on the respective health of the run game pieces as absences from Swift or offensive line pieces are likely to tilt the Lions a little more pass-heavy than they would otherwise like, 
a la late season 2021. A standard week would lead to increased rush rates through the combination of Swift and Jamal Williams behind a top five offensive line. As we talked about, this might not be a standard week for the Lions. But we do know this team likes to play with pace, fastest situation neutral pace of play in week one, and we do know rushing efficiency is likely to suffer should Swift and or pieces of the offensive line miss. Let's take a quick look at Jamal Williams' game logs in 2021 without Swift. Week 12, 17 for 71 and 0 on the ground, and 1 for 9 and 0 through the air. Week 15, 19 for 77 and 0 on the ground, and 0 for 0 and 0 through the air. Week 16, 11 for 22 and 1 on the ground, and 3 for 22 and 1 through the air. Maybe, just maybe, Williams doesn't carry the same game-breaking upside that Swift does at this point in his career. Washington's 4-2-5 base cover 2 defense relies on run-gap coverages up front and is missing a few key players in the first and second level, which allowed the Jaguars to average 6.8 yards per carry in Week 1. Jacksonville running backs averaged a massive 7.53 yards per carry on 15 totes. That could spell trouble, depending on the respective health of Swift and the offensive line. Swift led the backfield in snap rate by a wide margin in week one, turning a 67% snap rate into a 15 for 144 and 1 line on the ground and 3 for 31 and 0 through the air. One final note here the Lions ran exactly zero snaps with two backs on the field in week one, playing exclusively from 11 and 12 personnel. Amon Ross St. Brown was targeted early and often in week one, marking his seventh consecutive contest with double digit targets dating back to last season. His 12 targets on 37 Jared Goff pass attempts were good for a tidy 32.4% team target market share. All concerns about his volume taking a hit with a healthy DeAndre Swift and TJ Hawkinson were quickly dispelled. St. Brown, DJ Chark, Josh Reynolds, and tight end TJ Hawkinson all played 80% or more of the offensive snaps, with primary alignments coming from 11 personnel. From a personnel alignment standpoint, this offense is as vanilla as they come. Swift played 67% of the offensive snaps, Williams played 33%, three wide receivers played 80% or more, and Hawkinson played 91%, leaving the majority of the dynamism in the hands of individual playmakers and the strength of the offensive line. Likeliest Game Flow There are a lot more unknowns surrounding this game than the field is likely to give credit for. We don't know exactly how the commanders will choose to bias their attack. We have a good idea, which differs a bit from what the field is likely to assume. We don't know exactly how healthy the Lions' rush pieces are. Four offensive linemen are on the injury report, in addition to Vitae on IR and DeAndre Swift. What we do know is there are likely to be more offensive plays run from scrimmage than the league average here. Ron Rivera is one of the few game planners that changes his plan of attack drastically from week to week depending on the opponent. The Lions have based their offense around Swift, their offensive line, and Amon Ross St. Brown, and both of these teams are coming off tightly contested games in week one. Add all that up, and we're very likely to see fantasy-worthy box scores when all is said and done, but narrowing down where those pieces are likeliest to come from takes a bit more nuance than the field is likely to utilize this week. The bottom line is that this game deserves our attention this week. Keep an eye on the statuses of DeAndre Swift and the offensive line pieces for the Lions, as those are the pieces that are likeliest to alter how this game plays out. As in, the Lions are more likely to control the pace and tempo regardless, but much more likely to control the flow should Swift and the offensive line pieces play. Wide range of outcomes alert. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level.
Colts at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, September 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 45. Game Overview by Hilo. Both teams came out with pace during the first half of their Week 1 games, with each finishing in the top six in the league in the metric. The Colts are basically Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman or bust, as far as guaranteed volume goes, with no other player seeing more than a 77% snap rate in Week 1. Trevor Lawrence exhibited the same indecision and inaccuracies that plagued his rookie season in Week 1. The Jacksonville offense is likely to continue to struggle until he adjusts to the speed of the NFL game. Indianapolis should control this game through elevated rush rates and a prevent defense, likely allowing Jonathan Taylor to soak another robust workload. How Indianapolis will try to win. True to form under Frank Reich, the Colts ended week one with the league's sixth lowest pass rate over expectation, even in a negative game script that saw the team trail by three scores into the fourth quarter. Indianapolis was able to run 92 offensive plays in an eventual overtime tie, affording Jonathan Taylor 31 rush attempts and seven targets. Matt Ryan, 50 pass attempts, and Michael Pittman, 13 targets. The big takeaways from that week one contest were the 26% team target market share for Pittman, which is a tick below elite levels. I honestly was expecting that number to be a smidge higher coming into the year. The hefty 76% snap rate and 38 running back opportunities from Jonathan Taylor, the team continued to ride him deep into the game not shifting the focus towards Naeem Hines in a negative game script, and the confirmation of the assumption we had about this offense behind Taylor and Pittman, in that no other pass catcher saw more than seven targets and nine total pass catchers received at least two targets, super spread behind the two primary pieces. What might go missed by the field is the fact that the Colts brought the pace to open the game, finishing the first half with a 25.56 seconds per play mark, ranking sixth in the league in the metric. Summing that up, Expect the Colts to play fast with high rush rates, primarily focused on Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman. Jonathan Taylor's league takeover continues in 2022, as the electric back saw 76% of the offensive snaps, 86% of the team's rush attempts, a 61% route participation rate, which is far above his career numbers, and a solid yet unspectacular 18% targets per route run rate. The one area Taylor did not see much action in was the two-minute offense where he managed only 47% of the offensive snaps and ceded primary duties to Hines. That said, that is a hefty workload, friends. Taylor also gets the honor of running behind a top 10 offensive line in 2022, which, when combined with his dynamic skill set, allowed him to rush for a solid 5.2 yards per carry on a massive 31 carries in Week 1. Hard to maintain that level of efficiency with so many touches, but Taylor got better as the game went on. Hines should be considered the primary two-minute back and should see a handful of rush attempts per week, soaking up the majority of his value through the passing game. Of note, Hines did equal Taylor's touches inside the five in week one, which was in an area of the field that Taylor lapped the field in workload in in 2021. The matchup on the ground should be considered middling after the Jaguars held the commanders to 3.88 running back yards per carry a week ago. As we touched on above, the pass offense is very much a case of Michael Pittman and then everyone else. Pittman played all but two offensive snaps in week one, which is a massive number considering that equated to 90 total snaps. No other pass catcher played more than 77% of offensive snaps, Paris Campbell, with the third most snaps coming from tight end Kylan Granson, 55%. Yeah, behind Pittman, not much in the way of certainty here. What was interesting to me was the fact that the Colts played primarily from 11 personnel after ending the 2021 season below league average. That said, 
the wide receiver rotation behind Pittman was robust. Not much more to say here other than to highlight the solid but not elite 26% team target market share for Pittman and the increased involvement of Jonathan Taylor in the passing game through a bump to route participation rate. Of note, rookie wide receiver Alec Pierce was forced from week one with a concussion, which could tighten up the wide receiver rotation slightly. Should he miss week two, expect Ashton Doolin to operate as the de facto wide receiver three. How Jacksonville will try to win. There weren't many positives from Jacksonville in week one, to be brutally honest. Trevor Lawrence struggled under routine pressure generated by a robust 46.7% blitz rate from Washington, which caused a putrid 52.4% completion percentage and difficulty sustaining drives. Some will likely point to 7.53 running back yards per carry as a positive, but the backfield was split equally amongst Travis Etienne and James Robinson, and the massive blitz rates from Washington created artificial holes up front for the two to make one read and get upfield. As in, against the 4-3 base Indianapolis defense that relies on unique blitz packages and discipline amongst its linebackers, we could see that rushing efficiency makes a stark correction in Week 2. The other big takeaway from Week 1 was the usage of new Jacksonville alpha wide receiver Christian Kirk, who saw a solid 28.6% team target market share, 12 targets on 42 pass attempts. Jacksonville paid mightily for his services, and it appears they intend to get their money's worth out of him. The offense operated primarily out of 11 personnel in Week 1, adding 21% of offensive snaps from 12 personnel. Jacksonville notably did not utilize any 21 personnel looks, meaning the running back rotation should be considered a strict timeshare between Etienne and Robinson. Etienne handled 51% of the offensive snaps, but trailed Robinson in running back opportunities 13-8. to Robinson also scored both touchdowns for the Jags, one on the ground and one through the air. Either way you look at it, this is not a backfield to get overly excited about to start the season after Robinson made a miraculous comeback from a torn Achilles, assuming a strict timeshare with no 21 personnel utilization. This shortcoming is amplified by PFF's 32nd ranked offensive line. Per PFF, only Cam Robinson earned an above average grade as a run blocker in week one. The primary 11 personnel based offensive scheme looked one dimensional and flat in week one with not much in the way of misdirection, layered routes, or unique design. We saw basic principles, including one back in the backfield with moderate route participation rates, tight ends playing in line and utilized heavily as blockers to mask the shortcomings of the offensive line, and wide receivers running cookie-cutter routes with little interconnection. That's not likely to help their second-year quarterback as the routes take too much time to develop, allowing increased pressure behind a poor pass-blocking offensive line. In all, I was hoping to see more from this unit to begin the year. The one bright spot from the Jacksonville offense was Christian Kirk, who handled a borderline elite 28.6% team target market share, but even then, his route tree was thin to say the least. Any player seeing close to 30% of the total targets available in an offense is worth noting, but the matchup against a complex zone defensive scheme does not inspire much confidence for a wide receiver running a limited route tree. Behind Kirk, the Jones brothers, Marvin Jr. and Zay, operated as clear starters, 83 and 81% snap rates, with no other wide receiver seeing more than a 10% snap rate. The two combined for 15 total targets, so it's clear they are the main pieces of the offensive design, but the limited route trees continue for those two as well, meaning we can expect relatively poor efficiencies to continue. Evan Ingram led the tight end stable in snap rate and route participation, but he played only 71% of the offensive snaps. He was spelled by both Chris Manhurts, blocking, and Dan Arnold, blocking and in routes, meaning none should be counted on for any semblance of weekly volume. 
Likeliest Game Flow. This game is likeliest to be controlled by the Indianapolis linebacker core and offensive line, allowing the Colts to dictate the tempo, environment, and flow through increased rush rates and shut down defense. That said, Indianapolis did increase their blitz rates up to 31% in Week 1, likely in an attempt to hide the injuries to the middle linebacker unit. It remains to be seen whether or not that trend continues in Week 2, but we could see them up the pressure after seeing how poorly Trevor Lawrence handled pressure in Week 1. Either way, the likeliest game flow has the Colts asserting dominance sooner rather than later. Expect primary volume to flow through Jonathan Taylor, Michael Pittman, and Christian Kirk, with not much in the way of guaranteed volume behind those three. We're likely to see each team start the game with an elevated tempo, but the Colts are likely to slow things down with control of the environment. Bucks at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, September 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 44.5. Game Overview by Hilo. The Buccaneers list 10 players on their initial injury report. In contrast, the Saints list 11. New Orleans report seems littered with load management as 10 of the 11 players were listed as limited participants, whereas Tampa Bay could have some real issues here. The story for this one starts with each team's offensive lines, as the Buccaneers performed extremely well in Week 1, even through multiple injuries, while the Saints' interior is a massive point of weakness. The Buccaneers are likely to assert control in the trenches, which is the starting point for the matchups in this game. The New Orleans offense looks stagnant in Week 1, which makes sense considering the multitude of moving pieces for this team during the offseason. How Tampa Bay will try to win The Buccaneers' injury report was a sight to behold on Wednesday, for all the wrong reasons. Mike Evans, Leonard Fournette, Tristan Wirfs, Brashad Perryman, and Tom Brady, not injury-related, were all listed as limited participants while all of Chris Godwin, Julio Jones, Russell Gage, Zion McCollum, and Donovan Smith missed practice entirely. The presence of two members of an already battered offensive line and the top five wideout receivers on the depth chart on the opening injury report is notable, particularly considering a matchup with a Saints defense that notoriously plays this team extremely tight. The full practice report is not yet available for Thursday, writing this Thursday morning, but initial reports indicate that Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and Julio Jones were all not present during the portion of practice open to the media. The downgrade from limited to DNP could be telling for Evans, while consecutive mispractices for Julio and Godwin paint an ominous picture. As things currently stand, I would tentatively expect Evans and Julio to suit up, while Godwin should be considered a long shot to be active on game day. Tampa Bay surprisingly ended Week 1 with the 8th lowest pass rate over expectation, which is likely more of a nod to the lack of pressure from a Dallas team that mustered all of three points offensively, combined with limited repetitions from quarterback Tom Brady in the offseason program. That said, I'd expect pass rate values to increase as the year progresses. Leonard Fournette continued a commanding share of the backfield duties for the Buccaneers in Week 1, amassing a hefty, pun not intended, 76% snap rate. 76% route participation rate, and 100% of two-minute snaps. Those underlying metrics mean we shouldn't read too far into the fact that Fournette saw only a 7% team target market share on a lowly 9% targets per route run value, as in Fournette is likely to see extremely solid receiving numbers this year with that level of route participation. For comparison, Dalvin Cook, Daryl Henderson, and Christian McCaffrey were the only three running backs to surpass Fournette's 76% route participation rate in Week 1. That's elite company, people. Also, side note, shout out to Henderson. My God. Rashad White ran well behind Fournette, accounting for just 17 offensive snaps, 27%, and eight running back opportunities, seven of which came in the second half with the game already in hand. 
That means that Fournette's gaudy underlying metrics likely reflect lower than actuality. Most notably, Giovanni Bernard and Keyshawn Vaughn didn't sniff the field. The New Orleans defensive line and linebacker unit also aren't what they used to be, coming off 5.3 net adjusted line yards surrendered and 5.5 yards per carry to the 31-year-old Corderell Patterson behind a middling Atlanta offensive line. It's difficult to write up this section for a Buccaneers pass offense with all five of its top wide receivers out of practice, but here we are. There's only one scenario where I expect a shadow out of New Orleans defensive backs, and that's if Mike Evans plays. Marshawn Lattimore has held Evans in his back pocket for their entire careers. For example, Evans averages just 51.4 yards per game against the Saints and 81.7 yards per game against all other opponents. Lattimore is also typically only in shadow coverage on large-bodied X-type wide receivers, of which Evans is. Any other scenario would likely leave Lattimore to his side of the field. I tentatively expect Evans, Julio, Perriman, and Gage to go, which would serve to increase the target market share of Fournette, Julio, and Gage, with Perriman likely to be used sparingly, should Lattimore be charged with the shadow coverage on Evans. Cameron Brait, Cade Otten, and Co. Keeft split snaps at the tight end position, notably leaving veteran Kyle Rudolph to rot on the inactive list. How New Orleans will try to win. The Saints mustered only 61 offensive plays run from scrimmage in Week 1 in what appeared to be a conservative game plan against the Falcons. They narrowly escaped with a victory after finding themselves down 16 points in the fourth quarter, scored 17 unanswered fourth quarter points. Not only was the overall game plan conservative, but they appeared to take it easy with a couple of their high-profile players in Alvin Kamara and Michael Thomas, who mustered 62 and 61% snap rates respectively. Kamara in particular saw a lower rate of touches per snap than his career numbers, managing only 9 carries and 4 targets on a normal-for-him snap rate. Also, the Taysom Hill love was not lost with the departure of Sean Payton, whose gadgety ways led to 81 yards and a score on 4 carries. Most notably, Taysom played only 16 offensive snaps and was not focused on tight end as preseason reports indicated. It remains to be seen whether or not the low rush volume was a function of the negative game script into the second half, or if the Saints are going to place more onus on quarterback Jameis Winston, but the above-average pass rate over expectation seems to indicate a relative changing of the guard. The backfield snap split should seem familiar for the Saints in Week 1, as Alvin Kamara was on the field at a 62% clip, seeding change of pace snaps to Mark Ingram at a 33% clip. As mentioned above, however, the overall rush volume and route participation rate amongst the two backs took a sharp hit in Week 1. They still managed 4.69 yards per carry, so your guess is as good as mine as to why the low volume, most likely a function of the negative game environment, which could be the case again this week. Either way, expect Kamara, limited in practice with a rib injury, to see 60-65% to of the offensive snaps, spelled by Ingram when necessary. Jameis Winston's career 16% running back target rate seems to be a primary contributor to the low receiving totals put up by Kamara, with Jameis as his starting quarterback. In what should be a surprise to everyone in the room, it was rookie wide receiver Chris Olave, veteran wide receiver Jarvis Landry, and tight end Jawan Johnson that led the team in snap rates in Week 1, 74, 72, and 74% respectively. It was Landry that paced the team in targets with 9, but the rate at which Jameis has targeted perimeter-wide receivers over the course of his career likely indicates a resurgence for Michael Thomas once fully healthy. He scored two touchdowns on eight targets in Week 1. For now, however, it is difficult to project a concentration of volume with the loose wide receiver and tight end rotations, not to mention sporadic usage and involvement from Taysom Hill. From a game-planning standpoint, 
the Saints will need to plan on increased pressure on Jameis Winston from up the middle, similar to what the Falcons were able to muster last week, if they want to avoid finding themselves routinely in long down and distance to go situations. Likeliest Game Flow We're likeliest to see the staunch defensive front and unique blitz packages from Tampa Bay eventually assert control over this game, likely providing the opportunity for Leonard Fournette to see increased usage. The uncertainty at wide receiver for the Buccaneers plays into this assertion nicely as well, with the potential for Fournette, Julio Jones, and Russell Gage to see increased volume should Mike Evans join them as active. From a macro perspective, who is active is far less important to the Buccaneers under Tom Brady than macro game plan development, which should involve Fournette heavily. The slow start by the Saints to start the season is likely indicative of the numerous moving pieces they had this offseason, which may or may not continue into Week 2, likelier than not in my opinion. Furthermore, the declining offensive and defensive lines for the Saints simply add more variables for them to figure out. All of this comes together to form a likeliest scenario where the Buccaneers control the tempo, flow, and environment, likely forcing the Saints into second-half desperation as they did in Week 1. Panthers at Giants. Kickoff Sunday, September 18th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 43.5. Game Overview by Hilo. New Giants defensive coordinator Wink Martindale blitzed a 48.6% clip in Week 1 after coming over from the same position in Baltimore, where they finished no lower than 6th in overall blitz rate over the previous four seasons, 6th last year and 1st in each of the three seasons preceding that. Baker Mayfield has a career 35.8 PFF rating when under pressure, 41.8% completion percentage, and 57.3 PFF rating when blitzed, compared to an elite 74.0 PFF rating with a clean pocket. The Giants' pass catchers are a veritable mess outside of Saquon Barkley, and nobody can be fully trusted until we get more fidelity. Carolina would do well to get Christian McCaffrey more than five first-half touches this week. DJ Moore is a stud versus man coverages, something he should see plenty of against a Wink Martindale defense. How Carolina will try to win Matt Rule's Panthers looked lost offensively to begin the season, adapting a hyper-conservative game plan and not opening things up until deep into the fourth quarter in Week 1. It's honestly a shame they almost came back to win late because it could lead to a somewhat validated feeling amongst the coaching staff, which is truly too bad considering the pieces of the offense. Christian McCaffrey maintains his position as one of the true workhorse running backs in the NFL, yet he was afforded only five first-half touches in Week 1. For all intents and purposes, this team still has a lot to figure out as far as identity goes. One interesting aspect is the disconnect between feigned aggression and play calling as the Panthers rank towards the top of the league in pace of play in Week 1, but were both timid on early downs and one-dimensional through the air until late in the fourth quarter. From a pure game-planning perspective, we should expect the Panthers to get out ahead of the likely high blitz rates from the Giants, meaning short-to-intermediate passing to DJ Moore and Christian McCaffrey. The Panthers' backfield is Christian McCaffrey's. He played a massive 83% snap rate in Week 1 on his way to a 23% team target market share and 77% route participation rate. However, his low 17% targets per route run and 61% team rush share were well below his career norm. There's two ways to look at this. One, the floor is in for McCaffrey for the remainder of the year as the latter two values increase to meet his career norms. Or two, Rule is making a concerted effort to lighten his load while not lessening his snap rate. The former makes a whole heck of a lot more sense to me considering the elite snap rate and route participation rate we saw in week one while the latter seems like pure idiocy in my humble opinion. As in, why in the world would Rule not manage his workload by lessening his snap rate to get the same elite per-touch production instead of calling plays around his elite back while he's on the field? 
all of that is a fancy way of saying CMC is going to be just fine, and I think we just saw a floor performance. The matchup is middling against a non-formidable Giants defensive line, with the primary detractor being the shortcomings of Carolina's offensive line. The only worry here is the lack of dynamic and schemed usage for CMC to start the year after two lost seasons, something I am not currently overly concerned about. The Panthers were held to a paltry 53 offensive plays run from scrimmage against a Browns team that controlled the game throughout. The interesting part about the setup of this one is that the Giants are now strangely well-equipped to do just that, control the game through their defense and ground game. That said, and true to Rulian form, the top two wide receivers played every single offensive snap in Week 1. DJ Moore and Robbie Anderson accounted for 14 of 27 Baker Mayfield pass attempts, good for a combined 51.6 team target market share. My takeaway here is that DJM, CMC, and Anderson are going to be the driving forces in this offense on a weekly basis, which could present some buying opportunities before we see them put everything together. The high blitz rates of Wink Martindale's defense on the other side should force heavier rates of man coverage and ball out quick from Mayfield, meaning DJ Moore and Christian McCaffrey should see heavier target shares than the more downfield Robbie Anderson. And guess who holds a top 10 career success rate against man coverage? Yeah, DJ Moore does. Greater than 30% target share against man coverages each of the last three seasons. His 2.4 yards of average separation versus man coverage is absolutely elite. How New York will try to win. The Giants suddenly find themselves in good hands up and down the coaching roster, with head coach Brian Dayball delegating offensive play calling duties to former quarterback Mike Kafka, while the defense falls into the capable hands of former Ravens defensive coordinator Wink Martindale. We saw a classic Martindale approach to the defensive side in Week 1, as New York blitzed Tennessee an absurd 48.6% of the time, a notable development considering Baker Mayfield has been one of the worst quarterbacks in the league over his career when under pressure. Carolina's offensive line was ranked as PFF's 24th unit entering the season and are coming off a game against a Cleveland team that amassed four sacks and six quarterback hits on a 15.6% blitz rate. Not good, Bob. By all accounts, this team is built from the defense forward hence us starting there with our exploration, which is an interesting shift in identity compared to previous seasons. The Giants played at the league's 30th ranked pace of play in the first half of week one, the most sticky indicator of pace of play plans moving forward to start the season, not increasing their tempo until forced to do so in the second half. They also, somewhat quietly and surprisingly, finished week one with the third lowest pass rate over expectation, further indication that Dayball has come in and completely flipped the culture of this franchise on its head. This is back to being Saquon's world. We're all just living in it. The electric running back amassed an elite 74% route participation rate, 82% snap rate, 37% team target market share, and 33% targets per route run rate, and route to 34.4 DraftKings points on 18 carries and 7 targets in Week 1. Dayball told us his offense would be built around his running back this preseason, and he delivered on that promise immediately. New York's rebuilt offensive line came into the season as PFF's 18th ranked unit, but has fallen all the way down to 27th after nobody could hold down the left guard position. Ben Bredson and Joshua Izudu rotated snaps throughout the game. Rookie right tackle Evan Neal struggled to hold his blocks in Week 1. That said, the sheer volume and explosiveness we can expect from Barkley is enough to keep him in the top three running backs conversation on any slate from here on out. Richie James and David Sills played over Kadarius Toney in a game where rookie slotman Wandale Robinson was forced to depart after only nine offensive snaps. That, my friends, is worthy of a great big oof. At least Toney played over Darius Slayton, am I right? All joking aside, this is not a straightforward pass-catching unit. 
Kenny Galladay led the team in pass catcher snaps at 77%, but saw only two targets. His inability to create any meaningful separation appears to still be a problem for quarterback Daniel Jones' progressions. Sterling Shepard and Richie James were next in line for snaps at the position, playing snap rates of 72% and 70% respectively, while David Sills mixed in for a 45% rate. The team also utilized a three-way rotation at tight end, with all of rookie Daniel Bellinger, Tanner Hudson, and Chris Myrick seeing playing time. That said, the Giants played almost exclusively out of 11 personnel to start the year, meaning none can truly be counted on in the three-way split. Robinson is currently listed as day-to-day, so look for an update from practice reports throughout the week. DNP on Wednesday. It's anyone's guess who is likeliest to step up should he miss, but I'd like to hope we'd see a bit more Tony. This feels very much like a Brandon Ayuk to start the year last year, where he couldn't be counted on until he proved to his coaching staff that his head was fully in the right place. Regardless, Giants pass catchers are difficult to trust from a guaranteed volume perspective, unless we're speaking of Saquon Barkley. Likeliest game flow. This game is likeliest to be dictated by the Giants defense which sounds almost hilarious to say out loud considering the year this team had last season. Carolina will need to keep away from long down and distance situations, so as to not allow the opportunity for the heavy blitz rates thrown around by Wink Martindale to influence this game, as they are almost assuredly to do if the Giants are able to control the tempo, which is most likely. The 29th ranked offensive line of the Panthers, paired with the struggles of Baker Mayfield when under pressure, are likely to be too much if faced at any regular interval. That should, theoretically, provide the Giants with more than 60 offensive snaps they were able to run a week ago, elevating Saquon's expected volume slightly. The low combined pace of play and relative lack of offensive explosiveness limit the overall upside from each team, but each running back carries an elite range of outcomes due to how heavily they are relied upon, and there are very clear paths of least resistance for each team. It's simply unknown whether or not the inexperienced head coaches on each side will be bold enough to exploit those areas. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Patriots at the Steelers kick off Sunday, September 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 40.5. Game Overview by Pappy The strongest play from this game is likely to be a defense. The Patriots are likely to outperform public expectations. Deontay Johnson and Najee Harris are mispriced for their roles-slash-talent. Pat Fryermuth saw 10 targets in Week 1. How Pittsburgh will try to win. A leprechaun named Lucky isn't as fortunate as Mike Tomlin. The Steelers forced five turnovers in Week 1, sacking Joe Burrow seven times while not turning the ball over on offense, and surprisingly, only allowing one sack for a two-yard loss. Despite those discrepancies, the Steelers needed a mistake-filled overtime to win, and that overtime was forced by a Minka Fitzpatrick blocked extra point as time expired. Had the Bengals executed that extra point, the Steelers would have become the first team to lose a game with a plus-five turnover margin and seven sacks in the last 50 years. How did the Steelers nearly lose a game they dominated thoroughly on defense? Their offense was pathetic. Tomlin has engaged in troll-yourself mode by starting Mitch Trubisky over the clearly superior Kenny Pickett. Tomlin is trolling himself because if the Steelers win, despite Trubisky playing horribly, he can't make a change at QB, because winning, duh. If the Steelers drop out of contention, then go to Pickett, the year goes to waste. 
This creates a lose-lose scenario. Even though the world has had four years to see what Trubisky is, a backup-level QB, Tomlin clearly needs a fifth. With Tomlin's luck, Trubisky will get hurt and he'll be forced to make the correct play, saving himself. But until then, this offense will be weighed down by a below-average quarterback. Tomlin is more of a button masher than a strategic thinker. Remember when it looked like he had figured out that going for two consistently was a plus EV play? Well, turned out he was just going for two randomly, usually if the Steelers scored first, to set the tone. The Steelers played fast last week, second in total pace, but they showed large discrepancies between the first half, 26th in pace, and the second half, second in pace. In week one, there was nearly a two-second gap in pace between the Steelers and the third-fastest team in the second half. This game was never more than two scores apart, and the Steelers were leading throughout. So why then did they play at warp speed in the second half with a lead after playing slow in the first half? Asked Tomlin. The Steelers' offense is just as likely to play fast as it is slow, but one thing that should remain consistent is a beat-the-man-across-from-you scheme, operated by a below-average QB. With the Patriots' run defense, 15th DVOA, and pass defense, 19th DVOA, performing similarly last week, expect the Steelers to stick with their pass-leaning and balanced approach on offense, where their success will be hampered by inefficient QB play. Expect Matt Canada to try and set up one of the outside shots. These appear to be more of a staple of his offense without noodle arm Big Ben, while mixing in the running game to try and bring up the safeties. Bill Belichick is adaptable on both sides of the ball, but he has recently preferred to lean on man coverage. Since I doubt Belichick respects Trubisky, there should be plenty of single high coverages for the Steelers to attack on the outside. The success or failure of their offense will hinge on how many of those shots hit since they are likely to struggle to sustain drives. How New England will try to win Bill Belichick is continually being reminded that winning games in the NFL is much harder when you don't have Tom Brady. On top of no longer having Brady, Belichick also lost his longtime offense coordinator, Josh McDaniels, and promoted, probably his friend, Matt Patricia, to a role he is wholly unqualified to fill. Patricia hasn't called offensive plays since 2005, and he appears to have sleptwalked through the last 17 years. The Patriots' Week 1 offense looks similar to how it did in the preseason, dated, uncreative, and lacking elite talent. The Patriots' offense opened plodding, 32nd in first-half pace, before only speeding up, 18th in second-half pace, to a still-below-average speed while in comeback mode. Despite losing all game, the Patriots stuck with a crawling offense, 28th in total pace. This Patriots offense wants to pound the ball for as long as possible while milking the clock even if they're losing. Can someone please inform Patricia it's not 2006? The goal of the Patriots offense is to create chunk plays with zone runs, setting up easy completions off play action rather than relying on elite talent, they don't have it, to get open by beating their man. The Steelers were strong against the run, 7th in DVOA, and fierce versus the pass, 5th in DVOA, last week while on the road against an above-average Bengals offense. However, the Steelers lost all-world linebacker TJ Watt to a torn pectoral, and his loss cannot be understated. This is not the same defense without Watt. The Patriots under Belichick have a long history of abandoning the run against the typically stout Steelers run deep. 
There is a chance we see that happen here. This chance is heightened by the loss of Watt, but the most likely game plan is more of Patricia's ground attack while mercilessly milking the clock regardless of the score. Likeliest Game Flow This game is rocking a tiny 40.5 total. That's because this is expected to be a matchup between two struggling offenses and two above-average defenses. The total only tells part of the story. The 0-1 Patriots being road favorites, negative 1.5, against the 1-0 Steelers is incredibly interesting. Did we all see the same Week 1 box scores? The Patriots got mauled by the Dolphins 20-7 in a game that was never in doubt, and the Steelers upset the heavily favorite defending AFC champions on the road. Usually, we see overreactions to Week 1 results in betting lines. This is what we call a fishy line. Vegas appears to really want you to bet on the Steelers. This is a game that might show reverse line movement. What does Vegas think they know that the public doesn't? The Steelers, without TJ Watt, stink. The Steelers' offense was putrid week one. Their only large gains were a trick play and a circus catch by Deontay Johnson on a ball Trubisky threw up for grabs. It took a historic effort from the Steelers' defense special teams to win, something they won't get again missing Watt. Vegas doesn't think Joe Mainstreet knows how lucky the Steelers were to win, and they're probably right. The most likely game flow has the Patriots controlling a close, low-scoring game that feels like a 2006 punt battle between two inept offenses. The Falcons at the Rams kick off Sunday, September 18th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Atlanta is due for a letdown, while the Rams are itching for a bounce-back game. The Falcons will have to make a decision defensively on if they change the approach that they've had success with or leave themselves vulnerable to the strengths of the Rams. Matthew Stafford and the passing game are in a terrific spot. The game flow is likely to keep Atlanta from relying on the run as heavily as they did in Week 1. How Atlanta will try to win the Falcons nearly pulled off a win against the Saints in Week 1, losing by just one point to a Saints field goal, with 19 seconds remaining in the game. In that game, the Falcons were able to control most of the game thanks to a strong defensive effort and a good rushing attack, with Corderell Patterson and quarterback Marcus Mariota combining for nearly 200 rushing yards. One of the key plays in the game that likely altered the outcome was a fumble by Mariota inside the Saints' 10-yard line late in the third quarter. Had Mariota held onto the ball, the Falcons would have had first and goal and a chance to take a 30-10 lead, effectively putting the game out of reach. In that context, we can see how impressive the Falcons' performance really was, as scoring 30 points in three quarters against a good defense would have been quite the feat. Entering Week 2, the Falcons will have a different challenge on their hands. The Rams are coming off a 10-day break following their loss at the hands of the Bills on opening night last Thursday. The Saints were very conservative in their game plan, and Jameis Winston struggled with the blitzes the Falcons were sending at him, resulting in a stagnant offense that allowed Atlanta to control the game. The Falcons ran the ball 38 times in Week 1, compared to only 33 pass attempts. Atlanta will likely try to take the same approach this week that they had success with in Week 1, although that approach is much less likely to hold water traveling cross-country against the defending Super Bowl champions. How Los Angeles will try to win. 
The Rams struggled mightily against the strong pass rush and talented defense of the Bills, and those struggles were only amplified as they were forced to try to keep up with the potent Bills offense and Josh Allen. After a 10-day break, hopefully, the Super Bowl hangover has gone away. Now they host the Falcons, a team that surprised many with their strong Week 1 performance, but is surely outgunned in personnel in this matchup. The Rams rode an elite offense that played with tempo at a top-five pace of play and threw the ball at a very high rate in 2021. The Falcons' defense had success in Week 1 by bringing pressure through blitzes at Jameis Winston, but that will likely be an issue in Week 2 as Matthew Stafford historically plays very well against the blitz. The Bills' defensive success against the Rams had a lot to do with the natural pressure their defensive front caused without needing to blitz, which allowed them to play seven men in coverage and drop into zones. The Falcons will either have to switch their defensive philosophy away from what they had success with, or will be playing right into the hands of the Rams' offense if they bring pressure and leave their back end facing one-on-one matchups and letting Matthew Stafford pick them apart. I would expect the Rams to get back to who they are in this game, feasting on an overmatched defense and taking advantage of likely Atlanta turnovers and short possessions that give them short fields. In Week 1, Michael Thomas and Jarvis Landry did combine for 12 catches for 171 yards and two touchdowns, most of which came once they started getting more aggressive through the air. And I would expect the Rams to attack that way first, with their likely success in that area, in turn opening up the running game, screen passes, and short area work for the tight ends and running backs. Likeliest Game Flow The Rams are highly likely to control this game from start to finish although the dual-threat ability of Marcus Mariota and some game-breaking weapons in Corderell Patterson, Drake London, and Kyle Pitts definitely opens the possibility of the Falcons keeping this game close and or pushing the Rams to continue to be aggressive on the offensive end throughout the game. The Rams are favored by 10 points, and most of the public will expect a victory from them, but the potential for this game to turn into a shootout or at the very least, a true Rams offensive explosion will likely be overlooked by most after they were so thoroughly unimpressive in Week 1. A five-touchdown performance for the Rams offense would not be the least bit surprising. The Seahawks at the 49ers kick off Sunday, September 18th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Two teams on opposite ends of the emotional spectrum. A loss here, and Trey Lance could legitimately be benched. Both teams are likely to have a run-heavy approach and struggle to turn drives into touchdowns. Neither team plays with much tempo or pace, which should lead to low play volume. How Seattle will try to win. The Seahawks rode emotions, a raucous home crowd, a solid defensive performance, and Broncos' mistakes to a shocking Week 1 victory on Monday Night Football. Now, playing on a short week against a division rival, they will have to move on quickly if they want to compete as they enter this game as a double-digit underdog. Seattle had a solid showing on Monday night, but didn't do anything extraordinary. The Broncos outgained the Seahawks by nearly 200 yards, as Seattle only mustered 253 total yards of offense. The 49ers' defense is no joke and will certainly form a tough obstacle for Geno Smith and the Seahawks. 
Contrary to popular opinion, the Seahawks actually played at a top 10 pace in 2021. However, in week one, they were dead last in seconds per snap, while only having 49 total offensive snaps. The league average is in the low 60s. Putting that together, we have a conservative offense that wants to play at a slow pace, doesn't accumulate much volume, and isn't very efficient. While we can all see this reality, in Pete Carroll's mind, they are undefeated. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. How San Francisco Will Try to Win An embarrassment is a polite way of describing the 49ers' offensive performance in Week 1 against a Bears team that Vegas projected to win only five games entering the season. Granted, the game was played in near-monsoon conditions, which obviously impacted things, but nonetheless, the Trey Lance haters gained a lot of ammo in the season debut. Lance looked lost, and once the 49ers fell behind and were forced to throw, it became apparent that they had no chance of coming back. Watching some of Lance's throws in the second half of that game felt like watching a high school JV game where you know the only chance of a long passing play is someone falling down or an immaculate reception type of situation. All of that being said, the game conditions really were terrible and the loss of Eli Mitchell to a knee injury in the first half likely didn't help the situation. Unfortunately for the 49ers, the forecast for Sunday in San Francisco also calls for rain, although it is unlikely to be nearly as severe as Week 1 in Chicago. The 49ers will undoubtedly have a run-focused game plan with Lance, Debo Samuel, and Jeff Wilson splitting carries in a relatively even distribution. If George Kittle were able to play this week, that would be great news for a sputtering 49ers offense, as his presence as a blocker in the run game is huge, and he is another weapon in the passing game for Lance. One strength that Lance undoubtedly has is the ability to make throws downfield with his big arm, but the Seattle Cover 3 scheme notoriously limits those types of plays and punishes inaccurate QBs who try to force the ball. The more likely path of attack is short area crossing patterns and curl routes in the middle of the field where the Seattle coverage is most susceptible. The reality of this game is the 49ers, and more specifically Trey Lance, need to win. The 49ers have a loaded roster full of stars and veterans. They were a last-second field goal away from the Super Bowl last season. If they start their season with losses to the Bears and the Seahawks, two teams projected to win five or fewer games when they entered the season, it will honestly be difficult for Kyle Shanahan not to turn to Jimmy Garoppolo. Likeliest Game Flow This game is likely to be a low-scoring slugfest, with the 49ers most likely to be the ones in control due to more creative play calling and more game-breaking weapons. Both teams will lean heavily on the run, and both teams have good defenses that are likely to limit big plays, meaning that it will be tough to move the chains, and when the teams do move the chains, they are likely to struggle to convert those drives into touchdowns. The Seattle defense was excellent in the red zone in 2021, and continued that success against the Broncos in Week 1. Meanwhile, the Seahawks don't have the weapons or creativity to score well in the red zone consistently. So what are we left with? A game between two teams who have QBs that their head coaches don't trust, and likely a field goal contest in rainy weather. 
I am so excited. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Bengals at the Cowboys kick off Sunday, September 18th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 41.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson Both teams are coming off embarrassing showings in the opening week. Dak Prescott's injury has significantly changed the outlook for this game, as well as the likely approach for each team. The status of T. Higgins will have a large impact on how aggressive the Bengals want to be in this spot, as big favorites against an injury-riddled opponent. A game of chicken is likely, with the Bengals trying not to beat themselves, and the Cowboys just hoping to stay close enough to let them. How Cincinnati will try to win Fresh off a Super Bowl appearance with a young team, the Bengals promptly dropped a game against a Mitch Trubisky-led team to open their 2022 season. The loss was marred by turnovers, sacks, and self-imposed mistakes. While a lot of credit needs to go to the Steelers' defense, the Bengals created a lot of their own issues. At the top of the list of issues for the Bengals was pass protection, as the Steelers' pass rush had seven sacks and forced Joe Burrow into four interceptions and one lost fumble. The Bengals also had offensive line issues last year, but they put a lot of resources into fortifying the line this offseason, so the opening week had to be discouraging. The reality is that good offensive line play comes from communication and chemistry which is hard to have so early in the year with a lot of new pieces. This issue should improve as the season goes along, but in week two they will likely have their hands full again with Micah Parsons creating havoc on the edge. For most of last season, the Bengals had a conservative and balanced approach to begin games and would adjust that approach based on how the game was going. When they built early leads, they would run the ball more. When they fell behind, they would open things up. Later in the season, against better competition and in high-leverage games, the Bengals did start opening things up and throwing more aggressively. At this point, we don't know yet if the Bengals will continue the trend we saw them ride to the Super Bowl, or if they will go back to their balanced approach that they had for most of the regular season. Last week, after throwing a pick six on their first possession and having turnovers on three of their four next possessions, the Bengals dropped back to pass 60 times on 94 offensive plays. Due to the context of week one, it is still too early to tell what the Bengals will do. What we do know is that when they do throw, they are likely to be aggressive, as Joe Burrow led the league with 17 passes, 10-plus yards downfield last week, and 66.6% of his completions went for first downs. After a mistake-prone week one, and facing a team who will be without their franchise quarterback, the Bengals are likely to play this game relatively close to the vest to avoid a similar fate. The status of T. Higgins, who left Sunday's game with a concussion, will also play a role in how the Bengals approach this game. He is a key offensive piece in the intermediate passing game, and his absence may lead the Bengals to lean more on the run and short passing game rather than forcing the ball downfield against what was a very opportunistic Dallas secondary last year. 
I would expect the Bengals to look to establish the run in this game and take some calculated deep shots, along with schemed looks to get the ball in the hands of Jamar Chase in space. How Dallas Will Try to Win Adding insult to injury, the Cowboys lost Dak Prescott for at least a month to a thumb injury in Sunday night's embarrassing showing against the Bucks. Cooper Rush will step in as the starter for Dallas this week, changing things for Dallas from both a scheme and philosophy standpoint. Many will point to Rush's impressive appearance last year in primetime against the Vikings. A 2016 Cowboys victory in which Rush led a second-half comeback and threw for 325 yards and two touchdowns, as a positive sign for the outlook of the Cowboys. But that was a much different situation. In that game, the Cowboys entered on a five-game winning streak and had a bye the week before, allowing Rush and the offensive staff two weeks to game plan and get things together. They were also playing a Minnesota defense that struggled, and the Dallas offense was in a much better place with all of Amari Cooper, Cedric Wilson, and CeeDee Lamb active and a much better offensive line. This week, Rush will not have Cooper or Wilson, and the offensive line is dealing with injuries and performance issues. Not great. The Dallas approach will be fairly straightforward as they need to try to get an early lead that allows them to control the game and slow things down. They will need to rely on their defense to cause havoc for the Bengals, like the Steelers did last week, while hoping their running game can get going after a mediocre showing against the Bucks in Week 1. The lack of weapons for the Cowboys was clearly an issue in Week 1, and the quarterback downgrade will certainly not help them to instill fear and respect in opposing defenses. Ezekiel Elliott looks surprisingly good in Week 1, and Tony Pollard is likely the second most explosive player for the Cowboys behind only Lamb. With that in mind, the Cowboys' game plan will likely be built around those running backs and finding ways to move the chains and put Rush in third and short situations rather than predictable passing situations where the Bengals can force him into bad decisions. Some schemed looks on easy throws to Lamb are also likely, as well as a reliance on Dalton Schultz, who saw nine targets last week as a safety blanket. Likeliest Game Flow This game was put into the late window as a premium game with high expectations, but that scenario is likely out the window at this point. The Cowboys are going to do everything they can to slow things down and keep things close enough late in the game so that things could break their way. Meanwhile, the Bengals may have some calculated aggression, but after their fiasco in Week 1, they are likely to avoid doing anything too risky that would give the Cowboys a chance at controlling the game and pulling off the upset. The resulting game flow will basically be a game of chicken, with the Cowboys hoping the Bengals beat themselves, and the Bengals playing conservatively and trying not to beat themselves. Both teams know the disadvantage the Cowboys are at, and that knowledge is likely to play into decision-making by both coaches. That significantly reduces the explosiveness of what was looking like a game full of fireworks just a few days ago. The Texans at the Broncos kick off Sunday, September 18th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46. Game Overview by Mike Johnson one of many games this week where the favored team is trying to bounce back after a surprising loss, and the underdog is coming off an emotional win, or tie in this case. 
Houston doesn't have any tactical or personnel advantages to exploit and has the tough task of playing a road game in Denver in September. Denver will be looking to redeem themselves after a Monday night fiasco that was embarrassing on many levels. Denver's offensive metrics indicate likely positive regression in scoring, while Houston mostly relied on their opponent's mistake to put points up in Week 1. How Houston will try to win The Texans had an impressive opening week performance that was ruined by head coach Lovey Smith curling up in a shell and just hoping time would run out in regulation once they built a 20-3 lead, and then punting with 20 seconds left at midfield and settling for a tie. The Texans will try to ride their kissing-your-sister feeling to a road victory in Denver. Over the years, Denver has been notorious for being a difficult place for opposing teams to play, specifically early in the season due to the altitude. This Week 2 matchup against a team that had a very disappointing opening week will certainly be a test of whether or not this Texans team is for real after hanging tough against the highly regarded Colts in Week 1. Houston had a relatively balanced run-pass split in Week 1, with 40 pass plays and only 28 rushing attempts, despite holding a lead for much of the game. Houston also played at the fourth-fastest situation-neutral pace in the league in Week 1, after being bottom 10 in the league in 2021 in the same category. The Broncos' defense should be a tough test, as they held the Seahawks to only 253 total yards in Week 1, and the Texans don't really have any elite talents on their offense. The Texans will play scrappy and smart football, playing conservative but taking some calculated shots to try and pull off the road upset. Misdirection and spreading the ball around is likely Houston's best chance of consistently moving the ball against the Broncos, as vanilla schemes or forcing the ball up the middle on the ground or through the air to Brandon Cooks is unlikely to get the job done. How Denver will try to win Coming off an embarrassing loss, the Broncos are now playing at home and ready to get their mojo back. The Broncos clearly struggled with offensive rhythm and the crowd noise in Seattle, consistently running the play clock down as they tried to get set and having several delay-of-game penalties. Those factors will not come into play this week, and while Houston played well last week, the outcome of that game may be misleading. Indianapolis's self-inflicted wounds let Houston take control. Alec Pierce dropped a wide-open TD that would have put the Colts up 10-0, This led to a turnover on downs inside the Texans' tent. On the next drive, Matt Ryan threw an interception on a drive in Houston territory. The ensuing possession had a 30-yard pass interference penalty on the Colts that led to a Houston TD. Houston had a 50-yard play on a flea flicker that set up a field goal to start the second half. Indianapolis was driving and fumbled a snap in Houston territory. On the next possession, an Indianapolis roughing the passer penalty led to a Houston TD. Houston had only 73 yards of offense on their last six possessions, 30 plays of regulation, slash OT, after taking a 20-3 lead. Indianapolis had eight drives of 30-plus yards and outgained the Texans by over 200 total yards of offense. When Indianapolis wasn't shooting themselves in the foot, they were making things difficult on the Texans' offense and moving the ball basically at will against the Texans' defense. Really, that game was very similar to the Broncos' opening game, 
with the Colts and Broncos beating themselves more than their inferior opponents were outplaying them. I would expect the Broncos to be highly efficient moving the ball once again and have much more success in the red zone and generating explosive plays at home against a team that doesn't know Russell Wilson's every weakness and tendency. This is a classic bounce-back game for the Broncos and a reality check for the Texans. The Broncos should be able to move the ball both through the air and on the ground, with a likelihood of higher volume for the wide receivers this week now that they aren't facing the Seahawks' cover three scheme that limits perimeter and downfield throws. I would also think there is a likelihood of a little extra emphasis on the passing game after Russell Wilson's embarrassing loss in his return to Seattle and the multiple fumbles at the goal line by the running backs. Likeliest Game Flow The Broncos are likely to dominate this game. It's hard to see a scenario where the Texans take control like they did last week or like the Seahawks did to the Broncos. The Broncos played at the fourth slowest pace in the league in week one, although it is hard to tell if it was by design or out of necessity due to the crowd noise in Seattle. I would think their pace quickens considerably here after an offensive season full of talk about up-tempo offense. Meanwhile, the Texans actually played at a fast pace in Week 1 and will likely be forced to put their foot on the gas early if when the Broncos grab a lead. This game has a sneaky chance to turn into a somewhat high-scoring affair if things come together just right. The Cardinals at the Raiders kick off Sunday, September 18th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 51.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. Arizona looks like they could be a bottom-tier team this year, with an aging roster and lack of creativity from the coaching staff. Las Vegas lost a tough Week 1 game to a very good Chargers team, but showed some signs of promise. The Cardinals' defensive scheme leaves them susceptible to the weapons of the Raiders. The Cardinals are likely to face an uphill battle of game script for the second consecutive week. How Arizona Will Try to Win Arizona looked like a team lost in their season-opening 44-21 decimation at the hands of the Chiefs that was somehow not even as close as the score would indicate. The defense showed no resistance to the Chiefs, and the offense averaged only 3.5 yards per play through nearly three quarters when the Chiefs started pulling defensive starters and played more conservatively on defense with a 37-7 lead. For reference, the Bears' talent-deficient offense averaged 3.6 yards per carry, which was last in the league for Week 1, in a monsoon against a very good 49ers defense. Cliff Kingsbury doesn't appear to do much to change the how-they-will-try-to-win situation for the Cardinals from week to week. Shotgun formations, spread offense, horizontal passing attack, quick tempo, and no huddle. It looks the same every week, regardless of who they are playing. The scheme is built upon reliance on the Cardinals players making plays and beating their opponents, while their personnel really isn't capable of winning in many areas of the field. When things break down, or the short, scripted plays don't work, it often turns into a situation where Kyler Murray has to keep plays alive with his legs and hope something opens up. It really does make sense why Kyler was so apprehensive about being tied to this team and coach long-term, although $230 million will help you get over a lot of those concerns. The Raiders' defense played a solid game against a very good Chargers offense in Week 1 and will be a challenge for the Cardinals. 
There are no glaring weaknesses for Las Vegas that we should expect the Cardinals to change their approach to attack, especially given Kingsbury's I-know-better attitude. The outcome of this game and how things play out is much more likely to be dictated by the Raiders than by the Cardinals. How Las Vegas will try to win The Raiders struggled against the ferocious pass rush and zone concepts of the Chargers' defense. What made things especially difficult was the ability of the Chargers to create pressure without blitzing, as Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack had an absolute field day while the Chargers were able to have seven defenders sitting back in coverage. In total, the Chargers had six sacks and three interceptions, with Bosa and Mack combining for 4.5 of those sacks. Luckily for the Raiders, the Cardinals do not have Joey Bosa and Khalil Mack, or anything close to it. Due to the aforementioned lack of personnel to create pressure on the QB, the Cardinals blitz at an extremely high rate. They were top three in the league in blitz rate in 2021, and blitzed against the Chiefs on 68% of their offensive plays, which was 54% of Patrick Mahomes' pass attempts week one. They did this despite the fact that Mahomes is the best QB in the league when facing the Blitz. What this tells us is that, once again, the Cardinals are who they are, and we shouldn't expect them to make sweeping philosophical changes based on their opponent. For the Raiders, this is once again good news. Most of the big plays and offensive success the Raiders saw against the Chargers came against man coverage. The high Blitz rate for the Cardinals forces them to play high amounts of man coverage on the back end. The Raiders have three players who are very good at winning one-on-one matchups in coverage, with Devontae Adams and Hunter Renfro as route technicians and Darren Waller as a matchup nightmare. Cardinals linebacker Isaiah Simmons was matched up frequently with Travis Kelsey last week and was routinely left in the dust. I would expect Waller to have similar success. Adding to that, Derek Carr led the NFL in passing yards on deep pass attempts against the Blitz in 2021. The Raiders dropped back to pass the ball on 77% of their offensive plays in Week 1, and while that is a small sample, the matchup certainly sets up for a pass-heavy game plan in Week 2. Raiders head coach Josh McDaniels comes from the Patriots, where they notoriously have always had opponent-specific game plans designed to exploit weaknesses, raising the probability that the Raiders will be aggressive early on to make the Cardinals pay for their high blitz rate. The best offensive personnel for the Raiders is in their receiving core, while Arizona has a solid run defense and the Raiders don't seem to have a lot of trust in their backfield. Aerial fireworks should ensue. Likeliest Game Flow The Raiders have advantages tactically and in personnel on both sides of the ball, making them most likely to control the game. There are enough factors in favor of Las Vegas on the offensive side of the ball to make it a comfortable bet that their offense is able to move the ball and score points. The Cardinals already play with a fast tempo, top 10 in the league in situation-neutral pace in every year since hiring Kingsbury as their head coach, and there should be nothing in place to slow them down here. This game should have heavy play volume and a lot of points, at least on one side of the ball, with the one true concern for this game's shootout potential being the ability of the Cardinals' offense to sustain drives consistently.